Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of what, for now, we'll simply be calling the Reddit Detroit Pistons podcast. My name is Mike, otherwise known as Narwin, and this podcast, going forward, is intended to be a very community-oriented affair. Uh, plan to be discussing topics and answering questions posed by members of the subreddit, and ideally, uh, schedule and interest permitting, having a lot of members from the subreddit on the show as well. Plan as well is to have guests on for most or all of every episode. Uh, Today's just going to be more of an introductory affair, uh, just to get the ball rolling while I try to figure out the overall structure of the podcast. So it'll just be me answering questions, uh, giving my opinions in response to questions posed by some of you on a topic I recently posted on the sub. Uh, First off, before I start, uh, I'd like to thank everybody who expressed interest and encouragement as well on this podcast, as well as everybody who posted questions for today's episode. Now, this is the first podcast I've ever personally recorded. I'm still very much learning the recording software, so I hope you forgive me any issues with the sound quality that may arise. So, with all that said, let's move on to the subjects that were contributed for today's show. We're going to move through these chronologically, starting first with those that deal with the immediate future, moving on then to those that look at the playoffs, And then finally, those that look into management issues in uh, the more distant future. So to begin, uh, KaramFF7 asks, can you talk about the Bruce Braun dilemma we're having and if he deserves to have a starting role over Luke Kennard? So let's just first talk about how we got to Bruce Braun being in the starting lineup. Going into the season, we had two small forwards on the roster, Stanley Johnson and Glenn Robinson. Stanley, everybody was hoping would make the jump offensively, of course. He's always been a pretty good defender. Glenn Robinson was signed as essentially insurance. You know, best case scenario, Stanley would pan out. Glenn would be a small forward off the bench. And worst case scenario, Stanley would not work out and uh, Glenn would step in. He'd always been a pretty good spot-up three-point shooter, good at basket cuts, good in transition. So, you know, you think you've got a decent starter there, even if a limited one, even if one who's not great on defense, but he's good enough. So, as we know, Stanley didn't work out. He still couldn't shoot. They brought in Glenn Robinson. He did pretty well for a little while, and then he pretty much crashed as well. <clears throat> so at that point, they moved Bullock to small forward. It's a position he could play, but you know Reggie Bullock's maybe a couple hundred pounds, sopping wet. Uh, he gives up a lot of weight to a lot of the small forwards he was asked to defend, so it's not really ideal. In any event, Casey took the sort of unexpected step of putting Bruce Brown at shooting guard. Then when Reggie Bullock was moved, bringing Wayne Ellington, he starts at shooting guard. Bruce Brown moves to small forward. Now, on to Bruce himself, and excuse me if I ramble a bit about this, but uh, I don't think he's really even definitely ready to be playing in the NBA at all. Certainly not ready to be starting. I mean, certainly give the guy credit for some things. He's a super hard worker. He's a good character guy. He's very much a team guy, but he's extremely raw, particularly in the area of scoring. And uh, today's league is a scorer's league. As Ed Stefanski put it, and I agree with the way he put it, best way to win these days is simply to outscore your opponents. The rules strongly favor scorers, particularly with the changes that have been made this year uh, to freedom of movement. You've seen a lot of players and coaches come on and complain about them. Uh, Draymond Green and Greg Popovich in particular say, you know, it's not really very possible to play good defense anymore. Whatever the case may be, and this has been the case in the league uh, for some years now, uh, it's pretty permissible to to be a good shooter who's a bad defender. Uh, It is no longer okay to be a bad shooter who's a good defender. 
I mean, we'll get to uh, Bruce's bona fides of defender later, but whatever you want to say, he's an absolutely terrible scorer. Uh, right now, if you look at any player in the NBA who has started in at least 20 games, uh, Brown is second to last in true shooting percentage, uh, which means he's a terribly inefficient scorer. If you just look at effective field goal percentage, which is just shots from the field, free throws not taken into account, he is still second to last. Uh, he is one of the worst players in the league uh, at driving the baskets. He has been blocked. Uh, you know, he takes a vast majority of his shots within uh, within eight feet of the basket, and most of them within five feet. Has been blocked on, I think, over fifteen percent of those. Uh, his just his efficiency on drives is horrible. Uh, he is a terrible three point shooter. I think he's in the mid twenties on catch and shoot threes, which is completely awful. Uh, he makes the Pistons 4v5 on offense, and you just can't do that these days. And you see how some, uh, some of the better defenses in the league uh, adjust, like uh, Denver uh, in a game earlier this week. Uh, in the first quarter, when the, when the Pistons scored uh, eight points, part of that was just bad shooting, but part of that was that the Nuggets were exploiting Bruce Brown's presence. Whenever uh, Griffin would go toward the basket, uh, whenever uh, Jackson would go toward the basket, pretty much whenever anybody tried to drive into the paint, uh, Bruce Brown's defender would leave and go and double them, and that would be the end of that. Defenders habitually will sag off of him by six, you know, by a solid six or seven feet, because they know that even if he gets the ball and he's wide open, uh, he's you know he's gonna miss a great deal of the time. Uh, you know, on his wide open threes, he's shooting less than thirty percent. So, you know. Let the Pistons give him the ball. Let him shoot those threes. That's great for the other team because that's just an incredibly inefficient shot and uh, it boils down to a terrible offensive possession for the Pistons. So Bruce essentially makes the Pistons 4v5 and, uh, on offense, and that's just something you can't have in this day and age if you want to run a good offense. And the Pistons have struggled to run a good offense all season long, of course. You'd benefit much more from having a guy in there who might be a bad defender uh, but can actually shoot the ball and can, can give the Pistons uh, the ability to run a real 5v5 offense. Now, the thing is also when we're talking about replacing Brown with a guy who isn't a very good defender but can shoot, Brown, unfortunately, uh, despite it seems impressions to the contrary, is not really a very good defender at all, uh, you know, at least at this early stage of his career. Uh, he's what you would call a deceptively not good defender. Uh, a lot of you probably remember Avery Bradley. He was really well thought of as a defender, particularly by his opponents. Uh, what he really was in reality was an excellent isolation defender. That is, a very good one-on-one -on -one defender, good at staying with his man on the way to the basket. Uh, not so good in other walks of defense, particularly, for example, the pick-and-roll. And pick-and-roll pick defense is huge in today's league, just huge in general. Uh, Bruce Brown is a good isolation defender. Uh, he's got long arms, he's athletic, he moves his feet well, he can stay with guys on the way to the basket and generally just do a good job in isolation defense, uh, which is why, you know, he received some plaudits and praise earlier in the season for his work on James Harden, who operates a tremendous amount in isolation, though, you know, generally very few guys can stop him anyway, Bruce Brown included. Uh, Brown, however, is a horrible pick-and-roll defender. Uh, generally, the you know, shaking him, and this was... The case uh, with Bradley last year as well, though it's even even more the case with Brown. Uh, shaking him is generally as easy as running him into a hard screen. He'll either fail to uh, navigate the screen, and thus he'll end up way behind his opponent, uh, or he'll fail the switch. You know, if like uh, you know, if, if another defender from the Pistons goes to cover his man, Bruce will just get lost. Uh, the result is a defensive breakdown. Uh, most often, somebody will get an open three-point shot. The consequence is that Brown is a terrible three-point defender. So during his time in the starting lineup, he's allowed his defensive assignments upwards of 42% from three. 
that's really bad, and it's exceptionally bad on a team uh, whose defense really focuses first and foremost uh, on defending the three-point line. Uh, though he's done significantly better from within the arc, uh, he's still definitely not a standout in that area. And uh, overall, just his struggles at defending the three-point line mean that his opponents are shooting really well, you know, pretty well from the field, put it that way, well over league average efficiency. And uh, the picture gets even worse. Uh, when you take his fouls into into account, he is tremendously foul prone. Uh, again, if you look at guys who have uh, started at least twenty games this season, and if you take out of the list, uh, you know centers centers are naturally going to be more foul prone because they're defending the paint. So if you take them out of there, uh, Bruce Brown is second worst in fouls per hundred possessions. Uh, the only guy behind him is is James Ennis, a former Piston from last season, and he started in. You know, just about half as many games, uh, 26 versus Brown's 49. So that just makes the efficiency picture even worse, uh, where Brown, you know, defensive efficiency, rather, where Brown is concerned. So basically, uh, the whole picture is you have a guy on the floor who is dreadful on offense, like terrible, provides no value, provides negative value, in fact, because guys can just essentially leave him and, and go and focus on the other guys the Pistons have on the floor. And as a defender, he's not providing much at all either. Um, he's, he's a minus defender. So the fact that he's in the starting lineup at all makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, completely irrespective of the fact that the Pistons uh, are still relatively weak on the wings, certainly still quite weak at small forward. Uh, Brown is essentially providing a very negative value in the offensive end and uh, somewhat negative value on the defensive end. And it would be a, a questionable roster decision even if he were a very good defender. Uh, the days of the defensive specialist in the NBA is pretty much gone. Uh, you have very, very few guys, like exceptionally few guys in the league, uh, who are making, who, who are not centers, uh, who are making, uh, who are finding a place in the rotation, a major, major place in the rotation, uh, let alone a starting role in the NBA, uh, who can't score and are just doing it purely on the basis of defense. The last couple guys you had in the league who did that last season were Andre Roberson from the Thunder and Marcus Smart from the Celtics. Now, Marcus Smart has gotten it together. Uh, if I recall correctly, is shooting above league average from three point uh, from three point range, which is you know great for him. Uh, Roberson has been out, but uh, Roberson honestly, if he provides, he's much like Brown. He provides nothing on defense. Marcus Smart, at least, uh, was a, you know was a pretty good playmaker, decent maybe at driving to the basket, um, and and just good you know half decent at uh, at running an offense. Now, <clears throat> Roberson played the vast majority of his career as a starter alongside all-world offensive talent. Uh, first, Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook. Then for one season, Russell Westbrook alone during, uh, during Westbrook's MVP season. And then again last year uh, alongside Paul George and Westbrook. Even then, Westbrook was, uh, excuse me, Roberson was a problem uh, because opponents could play him, uh, could, could play Oklahoma City 4v5. And that's never something you want to see, even for a team that had that much offensive talent, which is significantly more than the Pistons have. Uh, if Roberson were to come back now, he probably, you know, he won't. Uh, he's, it's been a long road for him, uh, recovering from an injury actually sustained against the Pistons last year. Uh, but if he were to come back now, just miraculously recover overnight, he wouldn't have a place in the starting lineup. Uh, the, for the Thunder, it just makes a tremendous, uh, you know, tremendous, tremendously greater sense, pardon me, uh, to have uh, Terrence Ferguson in the lineup instead because he's a decent shooter. Uh, excuse me, he's a decent defender, but he can shoot, and that's just that's just much more valuable now. 
So even if Brown were, you know, a very good defender, still this wouldn't really make much sense, but it's kind of irrelevant because he's not a very good defender or a good defender. Uh, he's, he's a minus defender. So there just isn't a single good reason to be starting Bruce Brown, and there's ample reason not to be starting him. Now, so who do you replace him with? Uh, I would not replace him with Luke Kennard. I'll go over that in a bit. Uh, I think the obvious choice is Glenn Robinson III. Now, we want mince words here. Glenn Robinson III has not been a good player for the Pistons this season. Uh, so ultimately, we're choosing between poor and worse. And if you have to choose between poor and worse, you choose poor. Now, here's what Glenn Robinson can offer. Uh, number one, uh, and this is big, maybe bigger than it sounds, he is a half-decent, half-acceptable three-point shooter, and he will not be left open at the three-point line. Now, that's pretty vital. Uh, it is a huge problem. If, as is the case with Bruce Brown, uh, you've got a guy whom defenses are perfectly comfortable just leaving to double somebody else or to clog the paints, I mean, that's a gigantic problem. So the fact that that will not happen with, uh, with Glenn Robinson III is, uh, would be very helpful. Also, like I said, he's a half-decent three-point shooter. You leave him wide open at the three-point line, uh, especially from the corners, he might do a decent job of it. He's also fairly good in transition, decent at basket cuts, though he's not, for my liking, used, has not been used nearly as often as he should have been uh, by Dwayne Casey because he's quite good at those, being extremely athletic. Uh, and on the defensive end, which is supposed to be Brown's forte, um, Robinson isn't particularly good, but he can hold his own. He's probably, uh, you know, I would say roughly comparable to Brown as far as how many points he actually gives up. Uh, he's also larger, do a better job uh, of defending opposing small forwards. Uh, the ones Brown is going up against uh, will outweigh him by anywhere between a lot of them 20 to, you know, 20 to 50 pounds. He's only 200 pounds. So he's just in, in, in every way a, uh, a preferable option. Uh, now, why wouldn't I put Kennard into the line? Uh, I feel that Luke Kennard is and will be uh, best suited to a bench role, uh, you know, probably across his career. Uh, and this is why I see Luke Kennard uh, as kind of a Lou Williams type of player. I mean, goodness knows if he's ever as good as Lou Williams, fantastic. Uh, I don't ever expect that to be the case. Uh, but I see him as the kind of player you take him off the bench, uh, you let him handle the ball, you let him be the center of the offense, uh, and you let him shoot as much as he wants to and give him as much help as you can. And he scores a lot of points, provides some playmaking. Uh, if you put Kennard in the starting lineup uh, where he's not going to be able to handle the ball, uh, because uh, Blake Griffin and Reggie Jackson are possession hoovers. I mean, they, they eat up all the possession there is. Uh, then you're really wasting something of what Kennard offers. Uh, he's shown this year that uh, he can actually be pre pretty effective in the pick and roll. Um, opponents have really begun respecting him because uh, he's, he's one of amounts, to, at least over the last few months, but amounts to an elite mid-range shooter, which means if he comes around the pick, you can't give him any space at all. He's just going to shoot the ball. And uh, obviously, that's that's a problem for a defense if a guy is consistently making that shot. Uh, that helps to open up space uh, for other, you know, for other teammates, whether it's the other guy, uh, whether it's the role man, whether it's other teammates, because yeah, you really got to pay attention to him. So uh, if you don't let him handle the ball, then uh, you know you're really wasting what he can offer in that respect. And uh, also just coming off the bench, he's going to get a lot more priority. He's going to get a lot more chance to shoot. And, uh, you know, in all, if we're talking about all around, Luke Kennard is the best shooter on the team. And uh, he also functions best when fed, when given the ball a lot, when given a lot of help, and he can get going really quickly. So it, it can be really very, be very helpful if he's, if he's 
you know, he's one of the main guys out there, which again is never going to happen with Jackson and Griffin both on the floor. Uh, there was also the matter of defense. I mean, in this situation, you know, whether you're playing Kennard at uh, shooting guard or small forward in the starting lineup, uh, say what you will about Luke. I mean, one of his main downsides as a player and what really provides a ceiling as a player, he's not very athletic, particularly for his position. Uh, he's not particularly quick. He's got a slow first step. Uh, his lateral mobility is poor. He's got a pretty bad wingspan, uh, shorter than his height, which is pretty unusual for the NBA. Uh, so all that means, basically all that means, and you've probably all seen it, that he struggles as a defender. And uh, therefore it's best, and honestly he's a lot like, you know, like Lou Williams in that respect as well, uh, it's best to keep him out of the starting lineup uh, so that he doesn't have to go against guys he's just not, he's going to tremendously struggle against. Uh, you don't want uh, Luke Kennard out there against a good opposing wing rotation. Uh, you know, even if they're not beating him off the dribble, he's a switch risk. You can switch much bigger guys onto him. Uh, but also in isolation, he's just, he struggles because he, he can't move very fast and his arms aren't very wide. So it's best to keep him away from those guys if you can. Uh, and for guys like Kennard, who are defensive liabilities, I mean, you, as a coach, you're always looking at maximizing uh, the strengths of your team and minimizing their weaknesses and getting the most net value, which would be value in versus, you know, value positive versus value negative. Kennard's value positive is his scoring, his ball handling, and so on. His uh, the negative value provides is on defense. So uh, really, you want to put him in a situation where you can provide the most value possible, and, uh, and that's going to be from the bench. Now, that's not to say that I don't think he has uh, a pretty big future with the Pistons, because I believe that he does. Uh, just, you know, some guys uh, aren't going to be best as starters, and, uh, you know, they're going to provide more value from the bench. Maybe this is going a little off topic, but I think there are Pistons fans out there who don't really like the notion of Kennard uh, playing a long-term bench role. Uh, they tend to view him in the, in the shadow of Donovan Mitchell. And would like to think that Kennard going forward uh, could, you know, be as good as Donovan Mitchell. I think it's more reasonable to view Kennard just in the context of what he can bring. And if you've got a guy who can come off the bench and give you 12 to 15 points per game on good efficiency, then uh, strictly speaking, that's a really good value off of a number 12 pick, which is where Luke was selected. So I uh, appreciate the question. Uh, moving on to a related question from Stuff Dude, who asks, does Luke move to the starting two position next year, given his breakout this year, that will probably lose Ellington due to cap? As I said, I don't think uh, we're likely to see Kennard in the starting lineup. Uh, I personally don't think it gives him the best chance to shine. Uh, it, you know, Which, of course, raises the question of who is going to play there next year. Now, what I see in the future for Kennard, and this may seem a little radical, and honestly, there were those who suggested it uh, in the offseason, and uh, I thought he just wasn't up to it. I would play Luke uh, as the backup point guard next year. He's proven that uh, he has it in him to, uh, to handle the ball. Uh, he can be a threat off the pick and roll. Uh, he's got to be guarded very closely because he can shoot from anywhere. And, uh, you know, he's good at attracting attention. And uh, he's, got, he's proven to have surprisingly good court vision. He's a good passer. Uh, I was particularly impressed uh, on the recent game against the Suns uh, when he got to handle the ball on a few consecutive plays. Uh, and on one of those plays, he went around to pick, drew a double team on the way to the net, and shoveled the ball behind him to, I don't remember who was waiting at the three-point line, but uh, Luke was able to, to be aware of where that guy was and to make the pass without looking. So, I mean, it's just an example of uh, the guy's a surprisingly good ball handler, and uh, though he struggles on the way to the basket still, and who knows, maybe he'll 
uh, you know, maybe he's got the smarts to get there without, uh, you know, without the sort of high-level athleticism that, you know, which is a real asset and trying to reach the basket. But I just think he's a guy who has it in him to be a very talented scorer and a good ball handler, pretty good creator for others. And based on what we've seen, I mean, I think you just got to put him into a position where he can uh, he can handle the ball uh, as much as you can give him and, uh, you know, get him as many shots as you can because he's also just a guy who really thrives off of momentum and uh, and stumbles uh, when he's uh, when he's not able to shoot consistently. And... Uh, Playing a point guard will, will give him the chance to do all of the above. That, of course, brings up the question of what do you do with Ish Smith? Now, those of you who have been on the sub for, for a few years know how highly I think of Ish Smith. You know, I think he's, he's just a very high-character guy. He's a real hard worker. Uh, I don't think he's a good fit for this team anymore moving forward. Now, just to bring it up, there's been a lot that's been made of uh, this team's record with and without Ish Smith. Um, sure, the team's better with, with Ish Smith than without. Uh, it's a little skewed. Uh, you recall that Ish played with the team uh, throughout its very easy early schedule. It's like first 20 games or so. Uh, he got hurt just as they embarked on that difficult schedule, and then he came back when the schedule got easy again. So that's part of it. But you also got to consider that um, it was a drop-off from Ish Smith to Jose Calderon, a backup point guard, and Jose Calderon is, it seems, not really qualified to play in the NBA anymore because he was absolutely terrible. So that's just something to keep in mind when you see that statistic. But honestly, Ish, uh, it's an issue that uh, he's a bad shooter. I mean, that's a problem in general. It makes him kind of uh, tough to put on the floor with certain players the Pistons have. Makes him a bad fit, with you know, not an ideal fit to have on the floor with Drummond or really with anybody else who can't shoot. Uh, he's really bad off the ball. He's just not a good shooter. He's a terrible uh, catching through three-point shooter, which just makes him also a tough fit with anybody who really uh, needs, um, you know, with anybody else who's, who's ball dominant. Uh, basically, if you want to get good value out of Ish on the floor, you have to give him the ball. And that just sort of limits your options uh, on offense when he's out there. But uh, I think more than anything, uh, if we're thinking in terms of the bench, uh, Ish is just, you know, and in, in terms of Ish having have the ball, that just makes him a terrible fit with Luke Kennard, uh, who, as I said, I think is going to be a very important part, uh, very important piece for the Pistons moving forward. And Ish, honestly, I think uh, will hold him back. His possession is a zero-sum game. And if you, uh, if you give the ball to Ish, which you have to, if you want him to do good work, it uh, means Luke can't have the ball. And uh, their fit... Uh, since Ish returned, has not been encouraging. Uh, Ish has been much more apt to look for his own shots and uh, just hasn't played all that nice with Luke. I'm not suggesting it's deliberate, but, um, you know, it, it's just, you know, Luke can obviously play off the ball uh, tremendously better than Ish, but um, but you're really just sharply limiting what, Luke's, uh, what Luke can offer if you put him out there uh, on the floor with Ish Smith. So I think you let Ish go. There would be a couple other benefits uh, of following this course of action as well. Uh, first off, you kind of loosen up the glut at shooting guard. Uh, the Pistons have quite a few shooting guards right now. And if you're still playing Luke at shooting guard, then, uh, for example, you're going to have a tough time finding minutes for Kyrie Thomas, who uh, is a promising member of the organization. Uh, actually, some pre-draft profiles projected him as uh, just a 3 and &E starter at shooting guard. But you just you got a lot of guys playing at shooting guard. I doubt the Pistons will be able to move on from Galloway this summer. 
uh, and maybe they'll try, but uh, I doubt anybody's really going to trade for him. This, I believe his cap hit uh, is close to $8.5 million, uh, for the final season of his contract. So I think it's pretty likely he'll be on the roster next season, but you never know. But you also just really want to be able to free up minutes to play Kyrie Thomas. Uh, the organization is still, by all accounts, real high on him. Uh, in you know certain mock drafts, uh, definitely you know in the 2018 draft he was projected as a potential three and D starter. But whatever the case, you want to free up some minutes for him. And uh, he's more or less position locked at shooting guard for the moment. He doesn't handle the ball well enough to play point guard. Uh, and uh, he's only about 6'4 in shoes, so you really don't want to play him at small forward if you can avoid it. He could probably defend there. I mean, the guy's pretty beefy uh, at the combine. He was about 200 pounds at, I think, about 6.5% body fat. So not really easy to push around, but uh, it becomes kind of a different story on uh, on offense when you get to shoot over guys who are way taller than you are. And ideally, you don't want somebody only 6'4 trying to play defense on small forwards on a regular basis. So... Uh, it'd be great to free up some minutes for him. Um, so, yeah, just freeing up the, the glutted shooting guard would be would be a definite benefit, uh, particularly if the Pistons end up keeping Ellington, uh, which I'll go over in you know in just a couple minutes. Uh, another small, and this is a pretty minor benefit, uh, is that uh, starting look at point guard uh, would make it more palatable to have him on the floor with Mikhailuk at the same you know to have the two of them on the floor at the same time. Uh, the org apparently really likes Mikhailuk. You know, they, well, to the extent at least that they could have gotten another second round pick out of the Lakers, but they wanted him instead, even though, uh, he'll have burned a, a year in his entry level contract by the time next season starts. Uh, but, uh, probably never going to be a good defender. Uh, sort of fun, not so fun fact. Uh, Speed was actually at the 2017 combine, though he wasn't drafted in 2017. And he was the only non-point guard there with a smaller wingspan than Luke. So uh, wings, small wingspan is, is a major disadvantage as a defender. Um, also, his feet just isn't really all that quick on his feet. So if you put he and Luke together on the wing, uh, things probably could get a little bit ugly defensively. But uh, if instead you can put a guy at shooting guard uh, like Thomas uh, or like Brown, Bruce, uh, though he's struggled as a defender in the starting lineup, was actually a pretty good bench defender. Uh as far as Ellington himself goes, yeah, that's that's a tough one to call it. It's it's not out of the question that the Pistons keep him because floor spacers like him who can, you know, just curl around screens and uh, hit threes right away uh, at a pretty high percentage. That's a tough play to defend when you get guys who can uh, who can hit those. That's very valuable. Uh, so who knows? They could look to keep him. I don't see them doing it though uh if they can't find a way to loosen up that glutted shooting guard because they really need to address needs elsewhere and there's also just no reason to have that many shooting guards in a roster to begin with now of course the question becomes if he's gone who replaces him galloway is not going to do it obviously um so it would come down to uh canard thomas brown or somebody that they draft i would be extremely surprised if they drafted a shooting guard you know just for the obvious reasons that, that it's just not a need right now, uh, you know, compared to small forward in particular. And you just don't want to d- further deepen that hole of shooting guards you already have. So, but shooting guards, something that's tough to call, but I don't see Luke starting next season. Also a quick, small correction. Uh, Langston Galloway's salary next season is actually seven and a half million, not eight and a half million. I still don't think it's very likely the Pistons will be able to move his contract uh, unless it's part of a larger deal. Moving on, we've got a couple questions about playoff matchups. 
Now, I'm just going to go over all three opponents against whom the Pistons might play. Uh, I like to think it's probable the Pistons will end up in the sixth or the seventh seed, but given how close things are, it's not out of the question that they fall to eighth and end up playing against the Bucks. I'll begin with the team whom it seems no Pistons fan wants to play against, and that is the Philadelphia 76ers. So the Sixers, I agree, are the nightmare matchup for the Pistons. Uh, they just match up very well against the Pistons from top to bottom, just based on the composition of their roster. They also uh, are the only team in the league, aside from Golden State, who has the luxury of having at least two very good players on the floor at once throughout the entirety of a game, assuming good health, of course. Uh, you've got Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, Tobias Harris, and Jimmy Butler. And uh, if you are the coach of the 76ers, then you can have two of them on the floor always. And uh, that's just a tremendous luxury. But also you look at such things as that the Pistons really, they don't rely on interior scoring, but uh, but Blake Griffin, that's really his bread and butter. He can score from the outside, but uh, he'd prefer you know to score from down low. Drummond, of course, is limited to scoring from down low. Joel Embiid is, in my opinion, the second best defensive center in the league behind only Rudy Gobert. Uh, so just from the start that you've got just a, a major big league defensive anchor uh, guarding the baskets makes things more di- you know more difficult right off the bat for the Pistons. You've also got the duo of Jimmy Butler and Ben Simmons who might be able to do a fair job of defending drum uh, excuse me defending Blake Griffin. Uh, most teams uh, don't have another guy in the starting lineup uh, who's really big enough uh, you know beyond their center who almost invariably goes on to Drummond. Uh, they don't have another guy who's big enough to defend Griffin. Uh, ben Simmons is 6'11", about 240. He's not that much smaller than Griffin. Uh, he could do a fair job of it. Jimmy Butler's pretty beefy at his position, too. Uh, the fact that at least in the starting lineup, uh, you know, the, the Sixers can completely ignore Bruce Brown, uh, and they've got a couple guys who can really help on Griffin uh, will be a major benefit to them. Uh so they can manage that. Uh, you can easily hide Tobias Harris on Bruce Brown, too, if you choose to. Harris is the weakest. is a pretty weak defender, though. Honestly, J.J. Redick is probably the weakest defender out there. You can hide him on Bruce Brown, and that becomes a non-issue. And also, the Pistons are just going to have, would, would probably just have a miserable time trying to defend against this team. Uh, Drummond's, Joel Embiid is just, a, is just a rough defensive assignment for anybody, but certainly for Drummond. Uh, the guys who Drummond really focuses, or really has trouble against, are guys who can physically compete with him around the basket and stretch the floor. Uh, you know, Embiid's not the greatest three-point shooter, but he can still score pretty well from within the arc. He can drive the baskets. He can score around the baskets, and he's a big guy, very athletic. He can physically compete with Drummond. He's one of the few who can. Um, you look at, you know, Tobias Harris shouldn't, uh, you know, Griffin did a decent job against him in their last couple matchups, but uh, Tobias Harris is no longer anything like a number one option on this team. Uh, you know, he can be the number three, number four, even number five guy you have to look at uh, when you've got J.J. Redick on the floor as well. So getting away from Griffin, who is not the greatest defender and, and has become increasingly unreliable on defense, won't be the biggest issue for him. Uh, Jimmy Butler, uh, this is going to be a tough one. Jimmy Butler facing off against Detroit's wings. Butler is really going to be a physical handful for either Bruce Brown or Wayne Ellington or anybody the Pistons have on the wing to handle. Uh, you know, it's, I don't, I don't see the Pistons really having anybody who can reasonably compete with him. Uh, they just don't have anybody big enough. And, uh, you even move down to JJ Redick. Now, if you want to play him against Bruce Brown, great, because, uh, JJ Redick gets a great deal of his, his offense running around screens and, and Brown can't defend against those. 
And uh, then Ben Simmons, who is just who plays point guard, is six eleven, and uh, you know Reggie Jackson, goodness knows, has his large his large wingspan, which is helpful. But defending against Simmons is tough. So the Pistons just outmatched from top to bottom. Uh, you know, trying to stop the 76ers on offense. Uh, when it comes to the bench, Sixers aren't that deep. Um, you know, you've got Mike Scott, you've got Boban, you've got um, who else? You've got James Ennis and TJ McConnell. That's a decent bench. But it's a bench that's made a lot stronger by the fact that, again, you've almost invariably got two of Embiid, Simmons, uh, Harris, or Butler out there, You know, not to mention Redick. So the Pistons be pretty outmatched on the bench as well. So that is just a tough, tough matchup for the Pistons. And uh, I don't think a sweep would be out of the question, unfortunately, because the Pistons are just really outmatched in, in basically every respect. Uh and this is not helped, for example, by the uh, by the you know legendary by this point Embiid versus Drummond matchup. Uh, say what you will, you know Drummond managed to hold his own the last time, and uh, he's of course improved a great deal. And hopefully, uh, you know over the last few months, he's, he's played much more consistently. And hopefully, uh, he won't go completely flying off the reservation like he has uh, a few times against Embiid. But Drummond is foul prone. Embiid is excellent at baiting people in the fouls, and uh, should Drummond's uh, end up with two or three fouls, you put Zaza on the floor, and then it's just over, and Embiid can just eat you. And, um, you know, that's just not a situation you want to be in in a playoff series. Uh, you don't want to be in, in any of these circumstances in a playoff series. So it's just essentially the Pistons don't really have any significant strengths over the 76ers. There's just really no obvious route to winning games, and they're pretty much outmatched across the board. Moving on now to the Toronto Raptors. Um, Detroit matches up better against the Raptors. Uh, I do think that Detroit's regular season has led some folks to undersell the Raptors a bit. They are a very good team. And during the regular season series, the Pistons had some pretty big injury luck as the Raptors were missing key players in each game. And the games were very, very close until the very end, nonetheless. Uh, in the first game, the Raptors were missing their starting center, Sergi Baca. Uh, to that point, he had been one of the better centers in the league. Uh, he'd been extremely efficient on offense, being a very good defender. And also, uh, the Raptors had to that stage been bringing Jonas Valanciunas off the bench, allowing him to feast on opposing backup centers. Uh, Valanciunas is not ideal as a starting center because he's just not a very good defender at all. Uh, so that was a great arrangement for them. Missing Ibaka downgraded them from that to Valanciunas starting and the corpse of Greg Monroe coming off the bench. That's a pretty big downgrade. And the Pistons, or especially against the Pistons, uh, you know, with with uh, our you know with the team's reliance on on Griffin and Drummond down low, and the Pistons wanted a buzzer beater. Second game, you're missing. Uh, Kawhi Leonard, who's of course one of the very best players in the league, the Pistons have no answer to him on defense, not anymore, uh, with with Stanley Johnson gone. And uh, again, the Pistons win a very close game. And then in the third game, you're missing Kyle Lowry, your all-star point guard, and Sergi Baca, your backup, uh, your backup center. And so you go from Lowry Van Fleet, which is a very good point guard rotation, to uh, Lynn and Van Fleet. Lynn has seriously struggled with the Raptors, and he was very bad in that game too. And your center rotation goes from uh, Gasol and Ibaka, which is pretty darn good, to uh, Gasol and Eric Moreland, which, as we know, is not so good. And again, the Pistons win a very close game. So uh, they probably don't match up against the Raptors quite as good as some people think. Nonetheless, they do match up quite a bit better than they do against uh, the 76ers, and that is largely just boils down to the front court. Uh, you know, the Raptors, uh, Siakam's done very well this year. 
Uh, he doesn't handle really big, beefy players very well. Uh, Gasol and Ibaka are both good defenders, but they're both kind of past their primes. Uh, they're not the elite uh, paint defenders that they once were. So the Pistons are just really, uh, Griffin and Drummond in particular, are much more able to go down to work uh, against the Raptors than they are against the 76ers. So that alone uh, just gives the Pistons a significantly better shot than they would have against the 76ers. That said, the Pistons are are still significantly outmatched in some ways. Uh, Kawhi Leonard, for one, there is nobody on the roster anymore who can even has, has the slightest chance of slowing him down on defense. And also, uh, Toronto's bench is still significantly stronger, particularly if uh, if Jeremy Lin can get it moving. You've got Fred Van Fleet, uh, Van Fleet, excuse me. Uh, you've got Serge Ibaka, Oju Anunobi is still a pretty good player. Not still pretty, he's young, but he's a pretty good player. <laughs> um, especially on those nights when he's actually hitting his shots. Uh, so I would give the Pistons a, you know, a chance at taking a game, maybe two off the Raptors. But the Raptors are still a very good team, provided that they stay healthy. Um, I mean, you look at the starting lineup, Lowry's still a very good player. Danny Green is having one of his, uh, you know, his best seasons ever. I think perhaps his best from the three-point line, which is saying something for a guy who used to be one of the, you know, elite three and D guys in the league. Uh, Kawhi Leonard's a great player. Siakam is almost certainly your most improved player. And Gasol is honestly probably the weakest member of the starting lineup, but that's just because he's, he's on the older side and he's, he's still a very viable starting center. And as I said, they've got a pretty strong bench and they're well coached. So it would be less of an uphill battle for the Pistons uh, than would be a series against the 76ers. But don't make any mistake, this would still be very much an uphill battle. The Raptors are a very good team when they're healthy. Uh, now, as with any series, who knows? You lose some guy to injury, uh, things can change. But that's not something you can count on. And finally, that brings us to the Bucks. The Bucks are somewhat less menacing than they were a couple, excuse me, two or three weeks ago uh, due to the injuries to Malcolm Brogdon and Nikola Mirotic. That said, this is a team that has gone from maybe a nine and a half to a nine, nine and a half to an eight and a half. They're still an excellent team. Uh, Giannis is one of the best players in the league. Mike Budenholzer is the odds-on favorite to win coach of the year. The team is extremely deep. Uh, So they're a little less scary. They're still very scary. By all accounts, they're not very worried about the first round. They know they'll have those guys back most likely in the second round, and uh, they think they've got the first round in the bag. To be honest, they're probably right, no matter who they play against, uh, because they've just they've got enough weapons, uh, and they're well led enough that neither the Pistons nor the Nets nor the Hornets uh, nor the Magic or Heat uh, really stands much of a chance. So. Uh, that said, I would still rather play them than the 76ers simply because having Brogdon out of the lineup is kind of a big deal uh, for the Bucks. However, again, like the Raptors, this is a team that the Pistons might take one game off of. They're just just—they're an excellent team, and the Pistons have no way to stop Giannis. There's just nobody who can do it. So, all told, if I had to pick a team for the Pistons to play against, uh, it would be the Raptors. I think that would provide the most entertaining series for Pistons fans. Uh, I think against the Bucks. It, there would, I believe, just be a sense of almost inevitable defeat uh, that would probably put a damper on things. And I believe the 76ers would just be a very, very frustrating matchup. So I would hope for the Raptors. That said, I think we're talking less the difference between victory and defeat and more the difference between an enjoyable series and an unenjoyable series. It's very, very rare uh, for a bottom three seed uh, to beat a top three seed. And the talent disparity in the East this season between the top three and the bottom three is just tremendous. 
So uh, I think you could see the Pistons maybe take one or two games off the Raptors, uh, but I think that the odds against a series victory are going to remain pretty long if the Raptors field a healthy roster. Moving on then to matters beyond this season. So I uh, have a question uh, about whom I would like to see the Pistons draft uh, with whatever a draft pick may be. So uh, there are 14 teams that missed the playoffs. Uh, the Pistons will most likely, just based on the disparity in record between East and West, uh, the bottom three teams in the East are going to end up picking 15, 16, 17. So the Pistons will uh, pick in that range. Uh, as far as whom I would like to see the Pistons draft, really hard to say at this point. Uh, this draft is very top-heavy. You know, some guys uh, are pretty certain to go, uh, you know, in the top six. Past that point, things get a little bit hazy. Uh, guys are being mocked all over the place right now. So uh, I don't think the rankings will really stabilize uh, until after the combine, probably. Uh, and there's really just no way... Uh, to have any degree of relative certainty as far as who is going to be available at that stage of the draft. Uh, I think the greatest need for the Pistons is a small forward, of course. They really need uh, an answer at small forward for the future. Uh, even if it's just a guy who can play 3 and D, great, uh, because the Pistons, that's just the team's single greatest need. I would rate point guard as the second need uh, simply just because uh, Jackson's nearing the end of his current contract and the Pistons are pretty much set at least in the starting lineup in the other positions. Got another question as to possible trade deadline moves next year with the assets we have at our disposal, including expiring contracts. Unfortunately, there is no way to know uh, in, in what position uh, the Pistons will be at that point, uh, whom they'll sign this year in free agency, any potential trades they might make uh, in the interim, uh, whom they draft. I mean, they could really hit on somebody at the draft. Uh, it's small forward, for example, uh, or at any position. Well, largely just small forward. <laughs> I'll put it that way, but... But whoever they draft, uh, really, if they were to really hit on a draft pick, that would change the team's future outlook significantly. So there are just uh, too many factors uh, between now and uh, late January, early February of next year uh, to really predict what things will look like at that point. I was also asked as to how I see the team looking in 2020-2021, uh, uh, two seasons from now, when a lot of contracts have come off the books. Same answer. There's really just no way to know what will happen uh, with the Pistons between now and then. A lot of things can change. So that's, uh, I think, just a little bit too difficult to predict. And we have a final question from Chef Curry Sauce about my personal blueprint to Piston success. Uh, honestly, I'm probably going to leave this until the next episode. Uh, I know this is something I talk about a lot, uh, but to be perfectly honest, it's taken me four hours to record about 42 minutes worth of stuff since I've paused and re-recorded stuff so many times and uh i'd really like to have this podcast up for tonight uh, but i promise we'll cover that uh in the next episode uh, as well as i believe one or two other questions that i wasn't able to get to so i would just like to thank everybody for listening uh and uh hope you will continue to post uh suggestions and feedback uh for the podcast so everybody have a great day and go pistons